we're looking tonight at the Tenth Commandment, actually the Ninth and Tenth Commandment. We mentioned this earlier in the series. Depending on who you are or where you're from, how you number the commandments might be a little bit different. That's all right. Anyway, you slice it. The last of the commandments is about this crazy thing called coveting. Somebody asked me yesterday, what is coveting? And I thought that was a natural, I said, I hope you're coming tomorrow. You know, like, well, this is, this is what we're going to be talking about. But important concept. There's not a single thing in your life that's more important to learning how to manage who you are as a person than understanding your desires. So tonight we're taking a look at James chapter 1 and Exodus 20, where we get the last of the commandments. Uh, again, it's you shall not covet, and this is about controlling our desires. So uh, James 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the one who preserves under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But here's the key phrase. Here's the key phrase. Okay. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, and does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And in Exodus 20, where we get the, the last of the commandments, we read, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female servants, or ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I'm going to read just a little bit further. It says, When the people of Israel saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. People remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This ends our lesson, and I'm going to take a moment, as we've done each week, I'm going to remind you what it says, what Luther says, in this small catechism about these last of these commandments. He says, you shall not covet. What does that even mean? We should fear and love God that we do not scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way that only appears right, but help and be of service to him in keeping it. We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife or workers or animals or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. In his large catechism, he adds this. This is the summary kind of for the whole series. Therefore, let the ordinary meaning of these commandments stand. We are therefore here forbidden to wish our neighbor's harm or contribute to it in any way or give occasion for it. If he or she has property, we are to be glad about that to allow them to enjoy it and to promote and protect everything that may be of service and profit to him, as we would wish him do for us. Thus, God has aimed these commandments especially against jealousy and miserable avarice, his purpose being to eradicate the roots and causes from which spring the things by which we injure our neighbors. Therefore, he puts it clearly in these words, you shall not covet, for above all, he wants our hearts pure. However, as long as we live, we will never be able to attain that standard. Thus, like the other commandments, this commandment too constantly accuses us and shows us 
what our righteousness really amounts to in the sight of God, which is why God has to share his righteousness with us in Christ. All right, whether you're here for the first time uh, tonight, this summer, or you have been here every week of the series, it's probably worth doing a little bit of a summary. What we've said with the Ten Commandments uh, is we don't want, just want to have a superficial opinion of them. So there's much deeper and broader principles to the Ten Commandments. The most famous explanation of the Ten Commandments that's ever been given in the history of the Christian church was given by the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. And he was actually taking his cue from what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. So we've said this a couple of times. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, people tend to have a superficial view of commandments. They say, okay, because I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't broken the fifth commandment, right? And he says, I tell you that anybody who even hates his brother or sister has already murdered in their heart. He says, people think that because uh, I haven't committed adultery, I have no sexual immorality. But he says, I tell you, anybody who even looks at a man or woman lustfully has already committed adultery and sexual immorality with them in their heart. Very clearly what he's saying is there are deeper principles attached to the commandments, and it's on us to sort of flesh out under the Holy Spirit's influence to flesh out uh, what some of the broader applications of those commandments mean. Another thing that we've said throughout this series is we've said there is a spectrum of discipleship when we understand the commandments. So it moves from, at the very least, not doing something bad, so the absence of something bad, the next step is the presence of doing something good. And the last step of discipleship is the allowance of something bad to happen to me if it might help or bless another human being, right? So in the fifth commandment, it works like this. But murdering, it works like this. You shall not murder. That's a very low bar for loving your neighbor. Just don't murder them, right? So I don't think that's, it's where he wants us to start. I don't think that's where Jesus wants us to end, right? So don't murder them. Yep, that's love. But the next step in love would be don't hurt them in any way and don't hate them. And the next step after that isn't just the absence of doing something bad, it's the presence of doing something good. Help them in their hurting state. And then the final step of discipleship is maybe even allow hurt to come to yourself, maybe even allow death to come to yourself if it might mean blessing, saving, rescuing another human being. Is that not what the cross of Jesus Christ looks like? Is it not I will allow something bad to happen to me if it might bring life into somebody else's life? That's the final step of discipleship. Now, tonight we're looking at the ninth and 10th commandments, um, and it's about coveting. And if you don't know, the commandments are sort of brilliantly bookended at the beginning and the end with essentially the same commandment. The last of the commandments is this really the same thing as the first commandment. It's just stated in psychological terms. So what does the first commandment say? First commandment says, you shall have no other gods. It's about idolatry. God's saying, prioritize me above everything and every, everyone else in life. I am the God who created you. I created you for myself. Okay, so you exist for me. Prioritize me above everything that exists in life. Now, what does the last of the commandments say? Don't desire anything as though it were God. The first one says, okay, don't put any created thing ahead of your creator God. Any good thing. And it usually is a good thing. It's usually a blessing. It's usually uh, money or sex or kids or family or the approval of my peers or even my morality. That's what man-made religion is. I'm putting my morality as the, the, the top thing in my life. He says, don't put any one of those things ahead of the true God. And if you do, if you do, you're going to look to it to give you what only God himself can give you, your identity, your meaning, your security, your hope. The first commandment says, don't do that. 
If you do that, it's going to blow up your life. It's going to ruin your relationship with God and with that thing. The last of the commandments says, if you even desire something as though it were your God, you're going to worship your false God, your idol, by breaking all the commandments of the real God in between. Right? So if you have a false God of pleasure, I'm guessing there's a good chance that you are likely to break the real God's command about sexual immorality. And if you have an idol of autonomy and freedom, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do and nobody else is going to tell me otherwise, I'm guessing you're more than likely to break the real God's command about respecting your authorities. And if you have an idol of comparison, where you're constantly comparing yourself with people in life, I can nearly guarantee, as we talked about this last week, you're going to tear somebody else down with your words in order to make yourself look better by comparison. You worship your false gods, your idols in life, by breaking all the real God's commandments in between. Now, here's what you need to do then as a Christian. You have to identify for yourself, what is it in life that makes me so unhappy? What is it that makes me so anxious? What is it that makes me discontented and bitter? What besides Jesus Christ have I been looking to as my salvation, my righteousness, my, my identity, my functional trust? That's an idol. There is not a single thing that the most expensive psychiatrist on planet Earth can tell you that will enlighten you about your own self-management more than what the Bible says about coveting and about controlling your desires to identify who you are as a person. Now, okay, last of the commandments then is about coveting. What is this coveting thing? A more interesting question than what is coveting is to say, when was the last time you heard someone in society talk about coveting? Ever? Something really interesting happens when a word drops out of a language. When a word exists for a while and the bottom falls out in the vernacular in society, you know what that means? It means the society doesn't actually believe in the concept anymore. They think it's irrelevant. They think it's antiquated and, and, and not relevant to us anymore. Coveting is about excessive want or want in the wrong direction. Uh, if coveting is misdirected desires, you know what? It's not surprising to me that a nation that tells our kids above everything else, follow your heart, follow your desire, follow your bliss, follow your passion. We have absolutely no use for a word like covet. Because we don't actually believe our, our desires, our wants are really wrong. Uh, they're, they're just who we are. And who or what we are is just to be unconditionally embraced. I'm not saying that's the way things should be. I'm saying that's the way the world approaches this type of stuff today. Uh, interestingly enough, I think we're, we're not even particularly consistent uh, on those types of things. We, we tell people to follow your heart unless your heart wants to kill somebody. Unless your heart wants to... Uh, act on racist impulses or act on child abuse. At that point, we, we don't just say, don't follow your heart. What we tend to do, it's easier to do this. We say those are just bad people. But what's real interesting then is if we're really honest with ourselves, none of us is totally consistent in our desires in life. We all have conflicting desires that we need to own. So there's a thousand different ways to explain this. Let me just state it real, One, give you one real easy one. Most of us, if I asked you to raise your hand and tell me whether or not you wanted to be healthy and physically fit. Most of us would say, like, yeah, that'd be nice. I'd raise my hand. On the other hand, if I pulled my truck around and said, I have a truckload full of uh, Dairy Queen large cookie dough blizzards, who wants one? Most of you would raise your hands. Most of us, I would be the first in line because they're, they're my, I must have got them. They're in my car. So I'm, I'd be the first one to eat one. 
I want both of those things. Which of those wants is real? They're both real. They're both absolutely real desires. So your internal wants and desires are not consistent with yourself at all. We need to be honest with that. We need to recognize at the very least what this happens to tell us is that you don't even know what you really want in life and you shouldn't trust every want. Christians, we have to be like discriminate against some of the wants that we have in life. Interestingly, Christianity offers here a wisdom that I think completely speaks into like a cultural blind spot. Christianity operates out of the will. It doesn't operate simply out of our feelings. You know, kids operate out of their feelings. Animals operate entirely out of their feelings, or whatever you want to call them, instincts or drives. Adults who mature like to sprinkle in some rationalizations to their feelings and drives and whatever else. But only a redeemed, reborn child of God has a spirit-given will that encourages you to say no to your flesh. By the way, that's how civilization exists. It's not everybody following their desires. It's people saying, I'm willing to say no even to some of my desires for the sake of the collective and greater good. The gospel of Jesus Christ can help us do that in extraordinary types of ways. Uh, now, what exactly does that mean? The ability to say no to your flesh is one of the things that allows you to advance in life. My in-laws were visiting earlier this week, and we watched. We always watch some movies together. And one of the movies, I think I've referenced this before, and I hesitate to a little because there's one or two scenes I wouldn't recommend, and it's some language I wouldn't recommend. Nonetheless, uh, if you can find a cleaner version of it, it's a good movie. Uh, the movie Flight with Denzel Washington. It's about 10 years old, but he is this extraordinarily gifted, world-class pilot who also happens to be an addict a lifelong alcoholic. And he's so functional that he actually can fly the plane extraordinarily well. However, this is an issue that rules his life. And at the end of the movie, essentially what it boils down to, spoiler alert, is that he finds himself on trial and he has to confess. He's compelled to confess. And the movie ends with him having been in prison. You know what he says? He's there for 14 months and he says, Ironically, for the last 14 months of my life, I've been right here in prison, but it's the only time in my life that I've ever lived as a free man. Because it's the first time in my life I was ever actually able to say no to some of my desires, some of my drives. See, that's exactly what James is talking about in verses 14 and 15 here. He said, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. James is using a crazy picture here. He's using the picture of going into labor and giving birth as a picture, a visual of how sin enters into the world. And it works like this. He says, look, humans have a flesh that gets seduced by demonic persuasion. And then we essentially get, for lack of a better term, impregnated with lust that contradicts God's revealed will. And then when that lust takes over, our misguided desires move us in a destructive manner. You see that? Our flesh gets seduced. We are impregnated with a lust for things that contradict God's will. All bad behavior that exists in the world is that misguided desire acting out. It's not that the, it's not that the desire is wrong. Human desires aren't wrong. They're misguided. Satan learns our desires. He convinces us that the things that we naturally desire can give us what only God can give us. 
that that if I can just get that thing, that will make me happy. That will make all my problems go away. That thing can function as God in my life. So again, something like a healthy sexual desire, that's not wrong. That's wired by God. But sex outside God's design, that leads absolutely to destruction. Now, uh, we've mentioned this. If you've been here throughout the summer, I've mentioned this phrase. Forgive me for the redundance, but we've mentioned this a couple times. It's a really important concept in the Bible. In the New Testament, the word that we often get translated as evil desires is given 62 times. Evil desires is not a very good translation. It's the Greek word epithemia. Epi doesn't mean evil. It means over or hyper. It's over desires. The problem with humans is not that we love bad things. It's that we love things too badly. It's not that we love bad things. It's that we look to things too much to give us what only God himself can ultimately give us. We get seduced and confused and struggle with misguided desire. By the way, this is incredibly empowering. It's incredibly empowering that you and I can, in fact, control our desires, that we're not just bound to be exactly what our desires say. You know why? If you are bound to do exactly what your genetics say, if you are destined to do exactly what your broken upbringing says, you're in trouble. You know why? That's totally, that's totally miserable. Do you know that most alcoholics have alcohol abuse in their ancestry? Do you know that most people who abuse kids were themselves abused as kids? Are they bound to act according to that broken genetics with that broken upbringing? No, they're not. You know how they stop? You know how they break the cycle? They learn to say no to their flesh. They learn to say no to those drives and any kind of instincts attached to any of that. By the way, the positive way to say this, so we've said you, do, you should not covet. The opposite of that, the Bible also teaches. The Bible does this all the time where it says don't do this, but a different way of thinking about it is do this. The do this in the Bible, don't covet. Do this, be content. That's the opposite. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret after having gone through significant hardship in my life and a bunch of terrible things. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. That's a remarkable little phrase. You know why? There's at least a couple things in it. First of all, he says it's a secret, meaning like your flesh has no idea. Your flesh, if you just pursue the stuff that your flesh wants, you're never going to learn this secret. Second thing that's really interesting, he says, I've learned it. He doesn't say I've discovered it. Uh, it's not like a, a math problem that he learned the answer to. It's not like a buried treasure that he discovered. It's like learning how to cook. It's not just looking at a recipe. It takes time. It's a process. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation in life. What does that mean? This, what's the secret? He says, I've learned to choose to desire God above everything else. And I found that when I do that, everything in my life falls into place, including the deepest satisfactions in my heart. The secret to being content is to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Don't be surprised when everything else in life, doesn't mean life is easy, it means the things that matter in life, including your outlook on life, falls into place and the deepest satisfaction of your heart is fully satisfied. Now, I mean, I get that a bunch of what I'm saying and what a bunch of what I often say sounds fairly abstract. So I want to give you, especially when we talk about like coveting, which is like the most abstract of the commandments, uh, I want to give you just a very practical life hack on temptation, okay? 
earlier on this summer series, I referenced a book by John Mark Homer that some of you asked about. I want to reference another one. It's called Live No Lies. And in it, he does this great little piece on early Christian monastic living. And he said one of the things that the early Christian monastics did to combat temptations that they were struggling with regularly was this thing. In Latin, it's called antiresis. It means counter-talking. So it's very, very similar to what you might get in secular therapy that is called positive self-talk, positive uh, internal dialogue, except it has the weight of God's word behind it. So it's even more powerful. What is antiresis or or counter-talking? It's three steps, okay? Here's what you do. Number one, when you have extraordinarily negative feelings in life, I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, but what? Well, because I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job, or I'm single and I hate being lonely and I don't know if I'm ever going to get a spouse, or one of my kids is not doing all that well and, uh, you know, how are they going to turn out? I don't know. I can't control how they're going to turn out. You have to identify the negative feeling. The next thing that you have to do is you identify what underneath that, why do you feel that way? What do you believe that's causing that feeling? What lie of Satan has convinced you that that thing should be true and real and a fear in your life? And so for some people, it might be the idea, you know what, I got to have a certain amount of money. Because if I don't have a certain amount of money, I don't have security and I don't have control in my life. That's a lie. But a lot of us believe it. Or it might be, I have to have somebody attractive find me appealing or I'm not an appealing and valuable person. That's a lie. But a lot of us believe it. It might be that if my kids don't do well, I can't survive. My life isn't worth living. That's not true. It's a serious thing, but that in and of itself is not true. You have to identify what is the lie that Satan's trying to convince you of underneath the negative feeling. And you know what the third thing you do is? There is a scripture that absolutely contradicts and rebukes whatever that lie is that you're currently believing. Antiresis or counter-talking is saying, what does God actually say? Because remember, Satan can't control your life. He can just lie to you to convince you of things. And that makes us miserable. So what does God have to say about it that contradicts that? And then you take that message and you commit that thing to heart and you rebuke the lie in your life on a daily basis. One more time, just real quick. Whatever causes tightness in your chest and causes you to lose sleep at night, what is the lie underneath that? What is the thing that Satan has convinced you of that actually isn't true according to the Bible? Then what does the Bible actually have to say about it? You write that thing down on a note card, you put it on your fridge, you speak it to yourself, you memorize it, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you, try it. Tell me I'm wrong. It's not a magic trick, but it is supernatural. This is God's gym. You go into that and you lift those weights and you get stronger in such a way that eventually you're no longer going to feel like your psychological and spiritual back is breaking all the time. Okay? That brings me to the final point. Because the last thing I want to say is, it's, it's nice to say, like, say no to your flesh, but that's not enough because that's actually a different type of religious practice called asceticism. Christians aren't ascetics. Christians don't live in just, like, self-denial and self-flagellation of the flesh. And the reason for that is because our desires themselves aren't wrong. Our desires are wired by God. It's that we have misdirected desires and we have hyper desires. So we don't try to kill off the desire. What we got to do is we got to let the desire be filled only in a biblical, godly kind of way. What that means is we all have ultimate desires and all of us should pursue those ultimate desires. And the only way to satiate that ultimate desire is to find the living water that is the truth of Jesus Christ. 
let that satiate your deepest thirst. Let me put this a slightly different way. Every single one of us has a heart that wants to grab hold of something beautiful. Your heart tries to latch on to beautiful objects, but the only, if it's not Jesus, it's an idol. The only way to get it to let go of the idol is to show it something more beautiful. You can't just tell it to let go. You can't just do self-denial. It's like, so I have a pit bull. She's gorgeous. She's 10 years old. Her name is Gemma. She's in her, she's on the back nine uh, of her years, but I love her to death. And she, I have never been able to pry her jaw open before. Have you ever tried, anybody here tried to pry open a jaw of a pit bull before? It is so strong that uh, whether she has a toy in her mouth or something else that she's not supposed to have in her mouth, early on in her life, I would try to like rip it open and I couldn't do it. Now, there is a way to get uh, to release a pit bull's grip if you ever find yourself in one. This is very practical information. There's a release hatch like underneath their thigh that I'll explain to you afterwards where you have to pull the sensitive skin to get it to release. But actually, I don't do that on a regular basis because it hurts her. The way I get her to release something is I get a bacon strip. When she won't drop it when I say drop it, and when I can't pry her mouth open to drop it, I show her a bacon strip because she wants a bacon strip more than she wants that toy, and she drops it instantly. Your heart is like a pit bull's grasp on idols in this world. And you are never going to get yourself to let go of that thing. The only way to get it to let go is to show it something more beautiful. That means that you daily have to show yourself the goodness of Jesus Christ. You daily have to show yourself a risen and ascended Lord and Savior. Earlier on in this series, one of the phrases that we used that I want to say to you again, and I know some of you find it helpful and maybe even again commit it to memory I have. It's a Tim Kellerism where he says, you know, Jesus, amongst the idols, Jesus is the only God that if you get him, he'll truly satisfy you. But he's also the only God that if you fail him, he'll forgive you. And therefore, he should be your only God. See, if your idol is sex and you go down whatever avenues to pursue those sexual desires, I guarantee you know this. It'll end up in heartbreak for you or for someone else or both. If your idol is money and you pursue every possible path to get that money and security and control in your life, Ebenezer Scrooge is the greatest example of this. He gets this little glimpse when the ghost of Christmas future in A Christmas Carol comes and shows him what his future is like. And he dies alone, and his body, his dead body, is thrown into a cold grave, and grave robbers are laughing as they take all his wealth. And it's, he's terrified. He's overwhelmed by this because his idol is cursing him. Jesus is the only God that if you get him, he'll really satisfy you. But if you fail him, he's gracious enough that he will forgive you. What this means is for the sake of Jesus Christ, God is not a boss who is looking over your shoulder. Jesus Christ is a bridegroom who's waiting at an altar. He went to hell to rescue you, and he died to purchase for you the most gorgeous dress that you and I will be robed in for all eternity. He lives to fulfill the deepest desires of your soul, and he has already forgiven you for every possible infidelity you ever have or ever could commit. And he is now just so excited for you to finally say, I do. Look to him alone to satiate your heart's desires, and he will purify your hearts and cleanse you from all unrighteousness.
close with prayer. Lord Jesus, our hearts will forever be restless until we finally find our true rest and satisfaction in you. I ask that for anyone here tonight whose heart feels not quite right, show them your beauty. We ask this in your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.